Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. I think we're good to go. Well, Quinn, how's it going, man? Pretty good, you? Doing good, doing good. Um, It's great to have you back on. Oh, thank you. It's really nice to be back on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, we're sitting here. It's a sunny day, Wake Forest again. I wanted to get started. We've thought a lot about, and we've been talking about a lot, um, hierarchy. Yeah. And I just wanted to get started on that topic. You know, um, what are some general thoughts you have on the subject? Well, I'm just, I'm moving into, it's interesting. I'm moving into treating as the object of analysis rather than as foreground to considering some specific type of hierarchy gotcha so i'm used to like thinking about military conflicts and you assume the military has a hierarchical structure and you think about why that would make sense in terms of winning the conflicts but you're still thinking about the winning the conflicts is the thing in the foreground and the hierarchy is a means to that end and I'm moving into thinking about it uh, independently. I mean, as something that people have emotions about independently from whether it achieves goals or has bad side effects necessarily. Gotcha. So something like hierarchy as the object of what you're looking at and, and like that's the main thing. And, yeah. And kind of forgetting about everything else like in a specific case or anything like that. Yeah. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I I like it. it Hierarchy is, uh, I, I get the sense before we jump into it too much that different people have different kind of attitudes toward hierarchy. Yes. Um, I was seeing a really interesting discussion on this web forum I used to read uh, between an anonymous poster who said that he has strong preference um, for hierarchy and someone else who has strong preference against it. And what was neat about it was that they were both doing a really good job of distinguishing having the preference for the thing inherently from thinking that it has good consequences. Because how this sort of thing usually works is that if you like hierarchy, you argue that it helps us win more wars. And if you don't like hierarchy, you argue that it doesn't help us win that many wars. And you don't um, address... So that was the light bulb that made me think, okay, people care about this thing for itself and not just because it gets us these things but it has these bad side effects. Interesting. You know, like um, I think, you know, knock on wood, but I think tariffs are an example of something that I always use rhetorically um, tariffs when I need something that doesn't stimulate emotions but has policy. People care about tariffs because of the second order effects, but just about no one has deep and powerful first order effects about tariffs. Yeah. Gosh, no, that, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, you're you're exactly right. You're exactly right. People tend not to. Um, so it, it does seem that you know people have some inbuilt preference around hierarchy. Yeah. And maybe should we define hierarchy? Is that too tautological to just go ahead? No, I don't think it's too tautological. I'm not sure that I haven't tried before. Yeah. So it's difficult. Um, I tend to think of it first in terms of the structure. Gotcha. Nodes con- communicating to other nodes gotcha. in a sort of uh, tree-like structure. Got it. So a uh, non-hierarchical structure, all the nodes have equal relationships to each other node. And gotcha. hierarchical structure, uh, they usually have to go through other nodes to get there. But that's I'm not all sure that that's the core of it. Maybe it's something like sometimes, like if we're going to... So maybe maybe it's like in contrast to like, you know, there's hierarchy, and then there's like, so maybe there's like a plane like egalitarianism. Yeah, is a just everything's level. Yeah, and then hierarchy, you know, is is the fact that sometimes you know you need to order people or or people are ordered. Sometimes they have different varying levels of skills or something like that or whatever it is. Yeah, or or levels of anything. Yeah. Um, so it, it does seem like the current Melu, like the current like uh, zeitgeist, is very anti-hierarchy. Do you think this is the case? Yeah, that is my sense of it. That um, egalitarianism, I think you get strong resonance for that being good in itself. And I think it's rare to find people who will come out and say they think hierarchy is good in itself. But I'm curious how deep that goes right there's this um there's this recurrent pattern where i'm not sure i can quite describe it but where um in this case it would manifest as people who feel that the hierarchy is legitimate don't call it a hierarchy so um i think i first noticed this when we were talking about power um legitimate power doesn't count as exercising power Gotcha. Because power is what we say about bad exercises of power. Gotcha. And it's kind of this, this real distinction. Um, why do you think there has been a tilt towards egalitarianism? Um, is it is it just like this byproduct of getting richer over time? I think that's what Robin Hanson thinks. Gotcha. The, and I... I at least don't discount him lightly. Yeah. Uh, I think there might also be a game theoretic aspect um, because there are a lot of possible hierarchies. Right. And so um, it sort of makes sense that uh, people who want hierarchy would be divided between among themselves about which hierarchy to get and people who want no hierarchy might end up being the largest coalition just because there's only one way to have no hierarchy and there are many different ways to have hierarchy right right definitely um which is interesting yeah if we're going to map it to left and right i'm assuming you know we would think more left-leaning people would be definitely anti-hierarchy like the farther left you went i hear that yeah um i never know if i'm quibbling too much or no yeah um i i used to think that that was a really good candidate for um 
the underlying difference in intuitions if we were going to pick one. Right. Because we, I think a modification that I at least I devote some bandwidth to is that the right likes formal hierarchy more and the left likes informal hierarchy maybe based on prestige or influence. Interesting. I think a lot of people on the left um, have a very strong intuition that, for instance, if it were to come up, that the police should not treat Dr. Fauci and a homeless vagrant the same way. But they have a very strong aversion to formalizing that. Oh, interesting. So I'm seeing some people who I, I don't think are actually anti-hierarchical in the sense of being egalitarianism, but really don't like formalizing it. Oh, that's interesting. That's really weird. So, and that almost makes it sound like it's a case where, like, you know, maybe, yeah. Is it a case where maybe it is, they, you know, the farther left, the less of a preference you have for hierarchy, so you you want to kind of deny this aspect of, how humans work is that you know if you order people any different way some people are going to be at the top some people are at the bottom like height yeah we all did height like some people will be taller than the others um and if you have a preference against that you don't want to formalize you don't want to reinforce it in any way yeah you want to try and escape it but if you're on the right you're like well maybe we need to you know formalize this in a more robust way yeah i I think so it's complicated. It's very complicated. There's a perspective I'm not seeing as much of as I would have expected. And I'm not sure I really want to adopt the perspective as my own, but I feel like it deserves a see at the table, which is sort yeah. of like, um, let's have hierarchy, but let's have it uh, targeted. So... I used Fauci. He seems like a pretty, a sort of gener- good generic example of a high status person. Right. He definitely knows more than I do about biology. Yeah. I don't see a lot of evidence that he knows more than I do about philosophy. Gotcha. I should definitely defer to him in matters of biology. Right. This doesn't have very strong implications at all for why I should, whether I should defer to him in matters of philosophy. Right. Absolutely. Do you think? In some sense, the world has gotten uh, like okay. So the more people you have competing in a globalizing world, the uh, lower you can end up in any given hierarchy. Yes, uh, one bigger pond. Right. That's cool. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it's interesting. Do, do you think that? Oh man. Do you think that plays into... I bet it does. It's interesting. I don't, I don't have fully formed thoughts on that at all. Well, if you have more status systems, then just about everyone can be high status in one of those systems and right. treat that as the important system. Yeah. I think we interviewed David Friedman yes. here once, and he said that when he was in college, it was very much like that that um, you had subcultures and each subculture had its own stass system and yeah. each subculture regarded that as obviously the important stass right. system. And if you can win in one, yeah. you're good. Yeah. yeah. 
it does seem like a real problem. You know, these things are all tied up with, with status and yeah, and, and that it is. You know, hierarchy is inherently zero sum. I mean, it, it, yes. except it, you know what we just described is kind of like a special case. It's kind of adjacent. It's like, well, if there's more, you know, more hierarchies you can participate in, maybe you can find one where you can excel at. Yeah. Um, but it does seem to be a real problem that, you know, okay, globalizing world, there's more and more people competing in each game. It used to be, yeah. if you're in your small town, you could be, you know, the smart person in X way or, or do something impressive. If there's only a thousand people, it's a lot easier than if there's, you know, 8 billion. Yeah. Well, it's it's interfacing with Dunbar's number, I think. I mean, people only have so many slots, so... Right. You're competing with people you're not going to meet. Yeah. That's the different thing. And what's Dunbar's number just for... Oh, um, it's at least theoretical uh, limit on how many uh, people you can mentally simulate in depth. How many people can gotcha. be real to you? Um, because in the ancestral environment where humans evolved, there wouldn't have been that many people. And you would have... So, um, I think it sort of explains why if you meet a friend you haven't talked to in 10 years, things are awkward. It's probably not the only explanation, but if you've reused that slot for to stimulate someone else, it can be hard to transition back into. Right. Because um, it's usually thought to be like around 150 people, and I'm pretty sure I've empathized with way more fictional characters than that. So we have to be capable of reusing slots. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So maybe there's a look-alike. Like how many different kinds of broad archetypes are there of people? Yeah. Goes into it a little bit, probably. I think probably pretty strongly, yeah. Whatever a broad archetype of a person is, I don't, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it explains why... When I visualize bringing all the people together, it doesn't seem like this should inherently result in more people being lower status. And I think Dunbar's number explains why it might. Um, that uh, if you're in a small town and you're the guy who knows everything about fish, everyone's going to look to you. But whereas um, if we combine all the small towns, there's only going to be one guy in all of them who knows everything about fish. Right. So if people have the bandwidth to track that you're the 495th guy yeah. in the fish ranking, uh. right? Do Do you think? Well, maybe there maybe there's also some trade off, right, where you get specialization. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's like maybe you can be like the fish expert for trout or something. You know what I mean? Because you're in a bigger pool. Yes. Um, but I don't think it like covers. I, I don't think it 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 completely makes up for the fact that. You could be, you know, in this small group of people. Yeah. You can only keep so many people in your head at one time. Yep. I think so, yeah. I'm confused about how things don't seem bad enough um, for it to be as zero-sum as it intuitively seems like it should be. I mean, people seem really tremendously motivated by status. Um, More than money. Yeah. I, th I think I think oh. that's a, this is like a super underrated fact, right? Like I strong, strong, strong agreement. It's very bizarre. I think a lot of what looks like concern about money is concern about status, and money yeah. is a um a way of keeping score. 
I think yeah. a former president of ours said that once. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Is there is there any sense that you have that this is something that can be escaped or diminished? You know, one's concerned about this kind of thing. A model I have in my head that I use, and I may have brought this up before, but I use it again and again in different um, areas, is the space program. Yeah. Um, because if you look at the space program from not even like a hunter-gatherer's perspective, but the perspective of anyone who hadn't grown up hearing about the space program, yeah, we made a large, heavy hunk of metal shoot straight up into the air. And so far up that it moved away from the Earth. That is, it's like the archetype, archetypal example of something that ought to be impossible. I mean, if you were going to right. look for a constant, something that's true all the time, the laws of physics would be a good candidate. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want a good intuitive demonstration of that, you would go with heavy things fall down. Exactly, not go up. So I think there is a recurrent thing that. I would say intelligence does, or optimization ability, where you line up the loopholes just right, and you get an incredible result, and that becomes the new normal. We have planes now. I mean, right. So I think um, I often look at whether there are loopholes we can line up, edge cases that uh, will get us out of a bad dynamic. So is it something like? If you can create a new frontier. Yeah, or um, in this case it was, if hierarchy is mostly zero sum, but yeah. there are a couple of tiny little loopholes, then maybe we can parlay those tiny little loopholes into making it substantially not zero sum in the way that matters to humans. I mean, um, I think this really comes down to the idea of hitting tiny, tiny targets in optimization space. If you run a tornado through a junkyard it will almost never assemble a car right. but a human can get a car just about any time they want by right. threading that needle um and it's tricky because when you're speculating you don't know if we can do that i mean the light speed limit on space travel might be absolute right um so you never want to say we can definitely do this look at the space program yeah. but i think the space program should give us permission not to assume that we're being naive if we look at something that seems impossible and go maybe we could make that not impossible right and, and like how can we one should be open to try and yeah say, finding things like that yeah uh, i think maybe we don't adjust for the idea that you can combine improbabilities so if heavy things mostly fall down except for this weird edge case yeah. and this weird edge case and you combine those, I don't know. This may just all be really incredibly basic, but I think a truly zero-sum world is kind of really scary. Oh, yeah. I mean. Very horrifying. And it would be nice if we could find a way out of that. And by zero-sum we mean someone like to win someone has to lose yep there can be no but you know i and and robin hansen's super bearish on this <laughs> you know he's like this is the fluke we're going back to you know feudalism in the long enough term yeah and, um 
Do you think it's something we can continue can continue to escape? Is like this this reversion back to the zero sum Malthusian environment. I think where you, where you just make enough to cover your calories. And, yeah, or barely. Well, I think that's certainly it's the high entropy situation. So. Well, it's a high entropy situation. I think um, we probably can't escape there being some sort of constraint, which right. we're not meeting. But I'm hopeful that we can shuffle it to a constraint that doesn't hurt as much as starving to death. Right. Um, this actually this actually got me thinking. Well. Perhaps we should think more about how we escaped it in the first place. Yes, I think that's a really good idea. You know, like, what the heck happened, dude? Yeah. You know, like that—that—that that, that is, and in understanding why and how you keep that going seems like incredibly important. I know this echoes like what Patrick Collison, you know, that oh. that post in the Atlantic, yeah, about uh, there needs to be like progress studies. We need to. Work oh on yeah, this. I remember that. Yeah, like Jason Crawford's kind of taking that mantle on, and there's a lot of good work happening, I think, yeah. but. Um, it's a mystery, and it, it it does seem like very important to keep it yeah. going. Again, tell me if this is too general. I'm seeing humanity do incredible stuff. So there's a story you can tell where we are incredibly capable. Oh, yeah. And I'm seeing us fail at really basic stuff. For a while, we were... not. We had vaccines, and we were not putting them in enough arms. Yeah, I was like, wow. And it seems like it would be useful to figure out if there was some sort of rule for when we're going to fail at very basic stuff and when we're going to do incredible stuff. I'm not even necessarily... I've heard people argue that the space program was mostly a waste of money. Oh, and yes. I'm not uh, arguing against that. I I'm not saying it is great that we did it. I, I would have to study way more to know. I'm saying it would have looked absurdly improbable to someone. Uh, yes. So the fact that we did demonstrates that we can sometimes do absurdly improbable stuff. And I think part of, I thought a lot about when we're going to be super capable and when we're not. And I think part of it is realizing that it's improbable. The space program looked ridiculously Going to the moon looked ridiculously hard. So we approached it as ridiculously hard. Right. When we expect it to be easy and we're wrong about that, then we keep trying the intuitive strategies that don't work. Yeah, it seems like you have to be very aware of, you know. I'd like, you know, hey, this, and I bring up this book, I think, like every podcast, I want, huh? uh, this example. And I'm not only going to bring this up because I, I don't know enough about the space race to, to talk about it well. Um, I've been reading this book. It's by General Groves. Um, and it's oh. he's the guy who managed the Manhattan Project. Yeah. And he talks about in the beginning how, you know, they weren't exactly sure. Like, they, they were pretty sure it was possible. Yeah. Um, and they thought it was a good enough chance it was worth trying. Yeah. But, you know, it was all these conscious efforts to try to 
you know, how do we manage away risk in this area? You know, how do we manage away risk in this area? Like, what can we do to make it like, like there's this discourse about risks. Yeah. We need to take more risks. And, and I think that's just like the wrong way to think about it. Like the way, like he approached it was how do I minimize the risk in each of these areas to the absolute minimum? You know, what are my bets? Like, what are the real bets I'm, I'm, Yes. making and I want to be very conscious about how I make those bets but it seems like now you know you hear all these like uh, like th- that line like we just need to take more risk seems like the, the wrong way to think about it you know yes we um, don't want to take risks we want to be yes <laughs> that's all right well I um yeah it seems like cargo culting it selecting yeah. something that maybe correlates with doing it like taking the right risks and then optimizing for that. Yeah, as best you can. Yeah. So so it's funny. Two thoughts broadly, generally. Peter Thiel has this idea that like one of the big problems with, with like what I just described was people not thinking through things in robust ways. Do you think we've gotten less... We, we, we are worse at... Like, like what's it's like a sociology thing where people would just get like, like, like why would people, you know, try less hard or like think less hard about things? Is it like something where if you're not, your life's not on your line, if it's not the Russian bear that's going to come and these godless Soviets going to invade, do you just like not try that hard? Uh, I think it's likely to be multifactorial. So I never want to do that thing where I spot a cause and I hope inadvertently holding up is the cause why is so but tough man <laughs> part of it is dunbar's number that um dunbar's number interfacing with communication technology just about any decision we make is any decision we make at high enough level of policy is going to screw over a photogenic orphan somewhere and it used to be that maybe you would read about these people in the newspaper and now we have 4k video now if you're in a tribe of 150 people and one of your policies screws over one member of the tribe sufficiently that's kind of a problem right and we are not adjusted to this is happening to literally one in a billion people. We gotcha. can't process that. Right. So. Because it's in the context of Dunbar's number. It's like, well, this is probably like one in 150 or one in 200. Like that's. Yes. <laughs> like, which is pretty I, bad. I read people talking about the FDA and thalidomide gets brought up again and again and again, which should make us a little just suspicious that it's always the same example. Can you talk about thalidomide, what it is? Um, it was a drug that uh, we approved and which, um, if it's taken like by... It's sickness, right? Yeah. Is the exa- yeah. Well, I think other things, too. Gotcha. Uh, because I act- I've read, I read somewhere that um, some countries are still using it and that it's perfectly fine when it's used by anyone who's not a pregnant woman. Gotcha. So the sensible thing would be to approve it for anyone who's not pregnant. Right. But uh, if you take it while you're pregnant, um, the fetus is very likely to have birth defects. Gotcha. So it's an example of a place where we underregulated, and where I gather um, we regulated more than some European countries who gotcha. um, had worse results. Again, this is uh, hearsay. I haven't. Uh, I'm pulling together stuff I've absorbed through osmosis. Got it. 
as opposed to like having a Scott Alexander post about it where I'm pretty confident they have right. a... Um, so it's an example of why we need regulation, but it's an example that affected a handful of people. Right. And regulation also has costs. And yeah. at a certain point, um, those costs vastly exceed the benefit. Right. And so it's sort of weird. I think it points to something, even if there were lots of other... Um, even if my general bearishness on the FDA regulating things was wrong, and I knew that, yeah. it would still be pointing to something about human thinking that we bring up this same example again and again and again, which is statistically almost nothing. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like the <laughs> yeah the example we keep bringing up um, that's very potent. And yeah, it, there is some sense in which the uh, it's like, a, you know, I went to this program at UNC, you know, we talk about Baudrillard, you know, it's very like a lot of it, I think was not very intellectually rigorous, like yes. I would like, but some of it is true. There, there is some, like one of the big takeaways I have from Baudrillard was how important the spectacle is. Yes. You know, like that, the spectacle really matters in weird ways. Yeah. But like you said, like, you know, like it's very like vivid, like children, you know, yes. Uh, birth defects like it's very vivid and like that always destroys like that that wins over statistics any any day yes which is interesting yeah and it's certainly an obstacle sometimes if the statistics are pointing in the other direction right I, I agree it's tremendously um and I don't know how much of that is people being low information and it being easy for them to process examples versus um, thinking image imagistically. Right. So they think the example proves the point, which makes sense in a um, Dunbar-sized tribe. Right. It seems to work very well in that sense. Oh. Like, I haven't ever read Baudrillard. I've read uh, people talking about him. Yes. I, a lot of it... It's odd. I, I think his work has aged yeah. pretty well, surprisingly, because, you know, he's writing right after the post-Fukuyama stuff, yeah. you know, all this stuff, you know, like uh, the end of history. Yes. And I think he does say some true things and has some interesting insights. Yes. But it is wrapped up in this, we've talked about this before, the weird, the, the, yeah. you know, continental philosophy, like yes. where it can be very difficult to ascertain yeah. what's going on. I think they, my stereotype about Connells is that they very often have neat insights, but they have very ineffective um, error correcting mechanisms, which means not only aren't they um, rigorous, but they have a very hard time reorienting. If they get a bad idea in their head, they don't have a mechanism in place that will pull them around to, no, that turned out to be false. Right. Which is a bit of a problem. Yeah. It means you, you at least you need to exercise care reading them, right. which can be fun. Definitely. This actually, uh, so I wanted to circle back to one of the problems we were, we were talking about. And, and Peter Thiel mentions this, and, and I feel this and I see this. It's where, you know, he describes how, so we, we talked about the thinking thing, like maybe people are just not critically thinking and taking the time. 
and why that maybe has changed. And the second thing he talks about, which I think is interesting, he's like, well, all of the people starting, you know, these big companies where there's a lot of profit involved. So, you know, they found some, something other people are missing. Uh, they see the people that start these seem to be suffering from at least a mild form of Asperger's. Yes. Uh, which he describes as a change over time. Yeah. Um, is there some sense in which like people have just gotten too invested in, in copying each other? My gut says yes. And, like a ch- and has that changed? Like, I would expect some, um, I would expect one thing that sort of shakes people out of playing roles is mortal danger. And there's less of that. Gotcha. I don't think that's the whole story. Um, so it's like something where we're like all dancing in this like safe garden. It's like, well, that's got to be part of it. Um, and maybe that's the root of it, but I feel like, I don't feel like that's all of it. Maybe indirectly, maybe, um, we've always copied each other, but one of the behaviors to copy was orienting to the object level. And we're seeing fewer people do that now. Gotcha. Um, less cost associated yeah uh i have a a family member um who was observing with people at her uh work uh when we knew covid was coming and we were reading about and she was surprised that a lot of the stuff they were doing did not seem to be in their interests and i think she was thinking of them as maybe selfish but not um as essentially thinking on the object level modeling covid for themselves and coming to their own conclusions and so she was surprised when they were doing things that didn't make a lot of sense right i think a lot of what people do is playing roles and that's maybe accelerated over time yeah well it 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 is disturbing that if something like covid doesn't work i think we've talked about this with v as well yes you know like what does work right like you know it's like I don't know. And, and in some sense, maybe it wasn't vivid enough. Maybe it's, you know, it mostly kills older people. Yeah. You know, it's like we've, we've put those people away. We don't really. Yeah. You know, it's not like the ancestral environment where you had all the old people around all the time. We've gotten quite atomized. And I feel like um, she was imagining that they would see COVID coming before anyone mm-hmm. they knew had died. And maybe. You can't when you're in that state. Right. Something really bad has to happen. Yeah. Um, it's one of those... I had something I wanted, but I can't remember what it was. It seemed important. I think... There are a whole class of things that are... It's hard to talk about people not thinking critically because it's very um, blame-adjacent. And right. one of the things... One of the hazards is that people will assume that you're euphemistically saying something else um, that's also, that's emotionally aligned. So I kept talking to this family member and saying they're not thinking about this on the object level. They process social cues. Um, And she was surprised that they weren't thinking about it on the object level even when it was in their interest to do so. So it was like I was saying they're not thinking it through critically. And she was hearing that as 
they're being selfish maybe. And so she was surprised when they weren't being effectively selfish. Right. And then, and then the second thing is like, well, yeah, like maybe they're not really being selfish because like, you know, the other, there's no real benefit. Like there's more like maybe social benefit to like not caring or something. Yes. I think this is probably one of those things that it's a question of degree, but I think for most of my life, I've badly underestimated how little people are executing high-level heuristics. Um, we interviewed Zvi Mauschowitz on this, yeah. and uh, he goes farther than I do. He says that people at the fourth simulacra level have lost the ability to think about the object level at all, that um, they can't plan, that they don't it's have goals. Yeah, that they have... Um, systems that they have heuristics and they always execute those heuristics right um but i'm also sort of dodging the question of why and if this has gotten worse over time and intuitively i really really feel like it has um but i don't have a great explanation for that they actually think is the explanation right well, it does seem like a way you could get at this is to go somewhere with a much lower standard of living than here in the U.S. Yes. and just like and do like case studies or just like try and figure out, you know, how do people approach these problems and like what does that look like and is it different? Yeah, I don't know. It's very bizarre. Yeah, maybe. Maybe people in um, lower abundance societies, including our past society, um, looked like they were doing more object-level thinking than they were because the rate of change was slower, and so cultural evolution was able to adapt their heuristics faster. Gotcha. Maybe talk about that a little bit. So it's this thing where like things are like relatively static. It's low growth, so things just don't change. Yes. Well, in that environment, um, some some behaviors uh, put you in a good place, and some behaviors put you in a bad place. And people can watch each other and copy the behaviors that put them in a good place. So I think the um, the text, the example people tend to go to is maniac. I wish I could that herb. Um, it has cyanide in it, but very yes. low. Low levels, but you don't want it over time. And some uh, primitive people. I wish I could remember exactly where, but I think it's in uh, Mexico. Yeah, like, yeah. Have uh, culturally evolved elaborate preparation procedures, but they don't know why they're doing it. Yeah, or or they tell you it's like well, because you know, like I don't know if this is the case, but it's something like well, you know, there's bad spirits, or there's some, some yes. like religious or like. You know, the monster will come get you if you don't prepare it like this or yes. something. Um, and in reality, <laughs> Yeah, we never say um, we don't know why we're doing this. <laughs> right. Now, you, you, yeah, you say you have a reason, but... It's not always... So, um, in a society that's changing very rapidly, the process that gets you there is going to have trouble. Yeah. Um, 
But in a society that's not changing very rapidly, you could have a lot of behaviors that look like they're um, motivated by consequentialist reasoning. They're actually the same process we're seeing now. It just works much better when there isn't rapid change. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. It does lead me to think that... uh, Especially in the ancestral environment, there are severe consequences for for not following traditions, breaking taboos, like you know, like we talked about. Yeah. You, know, you eat the food and then you don't prepare it right. You're like this is stupid. I know there aren't spirits, and then you know you end up dying. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder, but but you think you think there would be less of that in the modern world because the, the consequences are lower yeah generally i would feel like you'd feel like people would have more slack they'd have they'd have more slack to not just blindly follow and copy yes and also um we have i know how this is going to sound i'm sorry but we we have science now i mean to some extent more than we used to we have science um and that means that this we're doing more consequentialist reasoning that's available. Right. Like, if the explanation is evil spirits, and right. everyone kind of knows... I don't know if everyone kind of knows that's not the real explanation. Right. But if it's a fake explanation, then trying to do your own thinking is a really bad idea. Yeah. If we've gotten better at articulating the actual reasons, then um, the advantage of doing your own thinking should have gone up some. Right. And maybe has. I mean... Yeah. This actually, so this reminds me, have you read any Taleb? Um, just a couple of essays. Just a couple of essays. I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted him to occupy one of my Dunbar slots. Nice. So I read enough for my brain to start parsing him as a person, but. Gotcha. Any thoughts so far? I, uh, I like his stuff on intolerant minorities. That actually, that seems like a really important um, contribution to, uh, game theory that uh, because i think we do have an intuition that if most people want a thing that thing tends to happen and i think we see that dynamic fail again and again and again and it's really interesting why i mean without judging where it's a good thing or a bad thing gotcha before i get into that can you describe what intolerant minorities are um if a small group of people um have a very strong preference and it's a very strong preference or they're somehow committed to um, not tolerating people who violate the preference. They're able to get their way way more than we would expect even if it's a very small minority. Um, so he uses uh, n- smoking and non-smoking sections as an illustration. Mm. You can sit in the uh, smoking section and not smoke and no one will have a problem but if you sit in the non-smoking section and smoke people will have a problem yeah got it is this kind of like bootleggers and baptists and like mansur olson and thinking about like you know it's i think so yeah like concentrated minorities can really like where you know if we all benefit like a little bit from like like so i wrote this paper on car dealerships yeah in college and it was like uh if you look at car dealerships 
you know, they suck up all the profits. They add, they add like a, a lot of cost to new vehicles. I can't remember <sighs> the exact figures anymore. They add a lot, you know, like add like 5% to the cost of new vehicles. Yes. Don't really add anything versus just ordering it from the manufacturer. Um, but the problem is, is like to, for all the manufacturers to get together and like, you know, just start delivering vehicles. And, and this is, they've actually written laws where you can't directly buy. Yes. Um, automobiles. Yes. From, from manufacturers, which is like, and actually Tesla has like had to fight a lot of this. Uh, and it, the, the question is like, well, like, yeah, it's like, it's cost me an extra 5% to buy a car. But I don't really have like, you know, it's not my livelihood. So I don't have time to go like worry about this. But all the car dealers, this is their entire livelihood. They can spend a lot of money. Yes. Really important dynamic. I mean, concentrate. You're saying I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But concentrated interest groups end up having so much more power than we expect them to. And I think we attach fake explanations to that i think very often um i've just i've had uh several conversations in the last two weeks that struck me from different angles how much people are equating um money and power and i think a lot of the times you have a concentrated interest group using their power to get money and then people point to the money as the root of the problem ah yes (laughs) and it does seem like very like money can be converted to like small legislative tweaks yeah like pretty pretty like robustly i I think yeah and i think you might small legislative tweaks pretty consistently and i think you might have great i think zvi suggests at one place that you'll have much more success if you're trying to use it to stop things from happening Uh, which makes sense if i think about it because everyone knows how not to do things so you know if you need people to not do things, you don't have to find the people who know how to do them and ensure that they're doing them well. Right, right. You just have to say no. Yeah. So, so maybe stopping things, like small legislative tweaks that are stopping things, yeah. seems to work well for that. It seems to work much less well in terms of like, you know, like you look at ad spending for politicians and like, it doesn't seem, let's say, like I think there was some paper I read it's like once you get above a million dollars, you have to like double the amount of money to add like some small percentage point. Yes. Okay. It's like they're very like marginal gains. And we even saw this like I think, you know, Hillary Clinton spent, you know, more than a billion dollars on yes. And it didn't work. Like No. It seems like um name recognition is important and money buys that. So once you get that past that bar. Yeah. But it doesn't um It, it it doesn't like one to one transfer to like imposing your will. No. I think people um well actually I think cultural evolution is doing something kind of wonky here. Oh yeah. Money is very legible. It's optimized to be legible. I mean and so if you're going to tell a story about, say, a corrupt politician who yeah. is t- making bad decisions on purpose to get gains. You want to depict that politician being paid in money because the audience will right. immediately understand it. Yes. It will be utterly ambiguous what's happening. Now, for the same reason, if you're an actual corrupt politician, you want to get paid in just about anything other than money. It's way less legible. It's way harder to right. get caught. It's way more ambiguous what you're doing. Yeah. And so I think we've landed in a situation where just about... I think I would say over 90% of the 
people doing the thing that we mean when we say corruption or taking payment in things that aren't money. And all of our stories depict them getting paid in money. So people see the money as this huge problem. Right, right. Yeah. Because it's very, it's very legible. Like you said, that's, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, sorry, I kind of sidetracked this with that, but I think that was, that was really good. So getting back to Taleb, um, you know, I've been reading one of his works and I don't want to misrepresent it because, you know, it's complicated work and there's a lot going on in the book. It's it's a great, it's well, it's well written. It's quite entertaining, which that's an art form. Um, but you know, I've been reading anti-fragile and I find it's quite interesting you know, Taleb is very skeptical of humans' ability to, like, um, rationally figure things out. Yes. And then, and then go, like, so his big example recently in the book, drug discovery. Yeah. Like, you know, he goes through all these different, and he recommended a book on it, and I read the adjacent book on drug discovery. I can't remember the name. And it goes through essentially every major medication we've discovered, you know. Yeah. And essentially every single one someone finds some big effect yes like some huge effect and then applies it elsewhere yeah you know like one of the first uh cancer chemotherapy drugs uh, it was something related to um some soldiers in world war ii we were tra- we had them on a transport ship you know and uh this was declassified relatively recently because we had mustard gas on the transport ship when we weren't, you know, (laughs) we're supposed to do that. Um, And um, somehow, you know, it got shelled or something and the mustard gas got released and a bunch of soldiers got um, exposed to it. And somehow later they found out there was like either lower rates of cancer or someone with cancer on the boat, like, you know, and they were able to connect this back, but it's not like we figured out, okay, like this is how cancer works. This is how we fix it. It's yes. like we find like, which I don't know. It, it seems like a tension a little bit with like what you were talking about, about going to space. Yes. You know what I mean? I, do you have any thoughts on that? Are these just like completely discrete things that I don't know, like some processes work certain ways and I don't know. It's exactly where I'm going with that. I think I think there seems to be it's important to keep a couple of things straight, um, separate. Uh, yeah. There seems to be, I think there seems to be more um, reasoning from first principles than there is because that's what we backfill when we find something. Right. So we might live in a world where we always claim that we got there partly from reasoning from first principles. I don't think we literally always, but, and very often that's not what happened. And that's distinct from the question of where reasoning from a first principles is a good strategy going forward. Right. Um, you can have a situation where a particular strategy tends to produce good results, but very many people claim to have used the strategy who haven't. And so it's simultaneously true that usually people haven't actually thought it through from first principles and that it's a good idea. Gotcha. So, so maybe we, it's like the story we tell ourselves yeah. like afterwards. Yes. Like I, I tend to think I, I, this is a strong, this is a fairly strongly held belief. I think the reasons people do things in general, like yes. do anything, it's like, 
obscure and weird and it's not it's very rarely like someone sat down and thought about it and 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 like made a plan and then concretely but i think it's important to do that i, I do think yeah. it's very important to do that and underrated but generally i think it's like but then we go back and we we feel when when you ask someone why they did something they feel back in the yes with something like robust uh explicit reasoning and people confabulating explanations which you're you're right happens constantly and i even see this in my own life and it's something i really try you know i i make it like i try and really fight it because i think it's a i do think it's a bad thing like you should try and you know have a plan and 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 try and like at least have indirect somewhere yep i think because otherwise you just end up wherever and i think most people just end up wherever because of like really weird reasons that aren't good and it's like you try and fight that as much as you can i don't know i agree i'm not great about it no yeah it's very difficult i mean it's even a question of to what extent is it possible to do that but uh i think it's probably worth trying is the conclusion i've come to um i want to shift a little bit it's an odd question but i think it's a interesting question i have been wanting to talk to you about um someone was talking about recently this was more common with the new atheist movement yeah you know like a while back um but they were talking about you know the the how it was very unlikely that there was there's very little evidence of um you know well of christ being resurrected or something like that um which actually got me thinking what bar of evidence should we expect to have if an ancient Sumerian man, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. like 2000 years ago was resurrected. What evidence would we have? It's a good, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like this, this, uh, you know, thought, exp- it's just a thought experiment, right? Like yeah. I've had I I don't know. Like, what do you think about that? And oh. in the context of, I see, you know, we have trouble even determining what happened you know, where COVID came from. Yeah. You know. Well, I think people have a real tendency to emphasize um, thresholds in their beliefs, uh, which yeah. are kind of artificial. So we're going to have a probability. Uh, yeah. Just about any time people start talking about burden of proof, it makes sense in a criminal trial that you need a threshold of probability to vote to convict. Right. There's a specific action. But most beliefs aren't like that. Um you have a probability that they're true. Yeah. I mean, even if you're not thinking of it that way explicitly. There is some sense in which, yeah. So, historically, just um, sort of the orthodox Bayesian thing would be we look at evidential fit and prior probability. And prior probability is an area where people, uh, I think that's where the disagreements tend to happen. Gotcha. Although, I mean, they don't never happen about evidential fit. And I see people a lot of the time exaggerating evidential fit because they're very confident of the prior probability. So they say something is very strong evidence of X, whereas, you know, it's really very weak evidence of X, but they really believe X is true. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, 
is a it's an interesting question um the it's going to vary some people are going to have different prior probabilities that happened but i think you're right that the evidential fit uh i'm really looking at the society in which we live now i am amazed that we have any remotely accurate records from the past i know right you're like oh my god (laughs) yes i mean it's interesting like i like to go back and read old issues of the atlantic yeah because the atlantic you know started in like 1800 1800 Bertrand Russell wrote an article for them once right at least once that I know of in yeah, 1922 so, I think that's awesome so yeah yeah it's like it's super interesting to go back and you can read these and like um because I read it now yeah. it gives me a certain context I'm like okay and it's not the same exactly but you get a view on like what people were thinking and how yes. how different it was I really like that about historical sources yeah but but there and, and there's something like even even special about it being something you consume now. Yeah. You know, it's like somewhat similar, and then it's like okay, like the, you can try and find the, the things that are are really different and weird. Yeah. It is it, it's interesting that I have scattershot impressions of them. Uh, it's generally favorable for things in that class, but I'm generally pretty down on things in that class. Yeah. Uh, but definitely some really good articles uh, today, and definitely some really good articles historically. Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite interesting just to get back and see it. Um, well, anyway, we've talked about a lot today. Yeah. Um, hierarchy, any, any final thoughts you have on the subject currently? I don't think so. I think it's interesting... Um, it would be interesting, and I haven't done the mill work that I would need to do to start doing this, but there's the question of status, and then there's the actual structure of the hierarchy. Um, and it's interesting to, I think Sarah Constantin has a post where she notes that in birds, uh, pecking order and flight leadership aren't correlated. Oh, really? So you have decision makers who aren't receiving uh, what we would think of as status rewards. I think um, there are probably some interesting insights about hierarchy as distinct from status, and there are definitely some interesting insights about status as distinct from hierarchy and the relationship. Uh, and whether the relationship could be different, I think uh, it's either Zvi Mashowitz or Benjamin Hoffman uh, comments at one point that it would be interesting to try to um, buy off the bad decision makers who care about status with status while reducing their actual impact on events. Nice. That would be wise. Yeah. That would be very wise. Yeah, I really like that. Well, I I definitely think it's an interesting subject, and I think it's one that um, has, uh, is comparatively understudied. Yeah. Definitely. And especially RE, it's importance. Yeah. Which is good. Which is good. Well, Quinn, thanks for coming on. Uh, Thank you for having me so much. It's uh, real good. Definitely. We'll have you back on again soon. Yeah, I would really like that. Awesome. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 